Hello and welcome to Yesterday in Travel. My name is Brian and I'm joined as always by world famous writer and historian <laughs> Kalina Fraga. Hey Kalina. Hi Brian. So today is our final episode of the season. We're going to take a short break for the holidays, but don't worry, we'll be back in your feeds with more exciting travel stories in the new year. And since this is our season finale, we're going to go out with a bang. Sometimes we focus on smaller, more esoteric moments in the history of travel, but today we're going to discuss a trip of great historical consequence, the week-long tour of China that President Richard Nixon took in 1972. It was the first time that a sitting U.S. president had visited mainland China and followed over 25 years without any official diplomatic contact between the two countries. The trip initiated a new chapter in the political and economic relationship between them. It shifted Cold War power dynamics, improved the American public's perception of China and the Chinese people, and led to the coining of a new phrase in our political lexicon, the Nixon goes to China moment. We'll get into all that in just a moment, but first, as we do each week, let's take a quick look at what's happening in travel news. So Kalina, what's going on with travel this week? Well, I found kind of a fun travel story to share, oh, yeah? which might be fun or a bit sad, depending on your perspective. Okay. But it's about how hotels are really trying to, you know, stay in it after a really mm -hmm. hard year. And um, it's this list in the Washington Post about hotel gifts you can give people. So there are things like if, you know, the Doubletree hotels, you can buy a Doubletree cookie for $15 to give people. Mm. There's things like you can buy Four Seasons sheets for $4,000. To give people stuff like that you can get hotel robes from certain hotels the ritz carlton is selling candles mm. they're really really trying to make this happen <laughs> that's yeah that like that sort of feels like a, um going out of business sale. you know when like <laughs> like an estate sale where you just have to like sell mm. off everything yeah a little bit like that i didn't really think about that but you're right uh. but maybe those four seasons sheets are actually really are they supposed to be really nice um, Four Seasons is a good hotel, so I guess, I guess so. $4,000, I hope they're nice. Yeah, I mean, it comes with a mattress, a topper, a sheet set, duvet Ooh. cover set, duvet insert, and two pillows. So you can feel like you're sleeping on a Four Seasons bed every night. Yeah. For and just $4,000. If you don't have the budget, you can buy individual pieces of the collection mm -hmm. as well. <laughs> a partial <Awesome>. experience. <laughs> cool. Kind of sad, but yeah. um, hey, here's here's to hoping that it brings in some much needed revenue for these hotels and that they get back on their feet once these vaccines kick in. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I found something that I thought was interesting. Uh, Kalina, what would you say if I told you you could have a free round trip ticket to Hawaii? Wow, I'd say that's fantastic. Well, right now, <laughs> Hawaii is actually offering so they're offering this remote work program mm. to anyone who wants to go to Hawaii work from Hawaii and what they're doing is they're they're setting up like a it's sort of like a lottery so you can apply up until the 15th of December I think and then from all the applicants they're going to select 50 people that get free round trip airfare to actually relocate to Hawaii oh. and it's but it's all part of this program it's called movers and shakas <laughs> which uh -huh. in Hawaii, like the this symbol, which you, people <laughs> uh -huh. listening can't see, but like I'm going to describe it. Your thumb out and your pinky out. Mm -hmm. 
that's like this Hawaiian sign and that's like called the shaka. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Anyway, it's called movers and shakas, like shakers. That's really great. Um, <laughs> and what you have to do is, so you apply and in order to get your free flight, you also have to participate in this program, which includes a give and get element. So you're, you pledge to actually work like a couple hours a week for a Hawaiian nonprofit or uh, like volunteer your time for like hmm. children's organizations. Um, so you're sort of giving back to the state in exchange for all these sort of perks like discounts on accommodations, restaurants and other sorts of things. So while you're there, you kind of get a bunch of perks and that's sort of their way of like appreciating people actually coming. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I could, It's like 40 degrees right now and about to start raining here in New York. So that sounds wonderful really wonderful. Yeah, it's kind of a cool program. And I, you know, I really think like the volunteering element is kind of a nice gesture. It would be great if like that idea could catch on and people, you know, when people travel places, there's sort of this sense that maybe you like give uh, give back more than just, I don't know, mm. spending money, but. Right. Yeah. The other things I just wanted to highlight um, for travel news this week. Uh, one is that the CDC just announced that they're really not into people going to Mexico. CDC used to have a scale of one to three uh, in terms of like whether you should travel to a certain country, one being the best and three being the worst. And Mexico was a three. And they recently just changed their metric for, to go from one to four. And then they put Mexico in four. So. Oh, God. This reminds me. I was talking with people in California and Ohio last week. And they're like, so there were red zones for coronavirus. And now there's purple zones for like even worse ones. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's not good. You can invent new zones for yeah. these things. And so that's really bad news. What's weird is that like there seems to be some disconnect between the U.S. State Department and the CDC, which I think is maybe... Mm understandable. It sounds like there's some disconnect in the U.S. government between a lot of different agencies right now. But the U the State Department is still s says that it's OK to travel to Mexico. But the CDC is saying it has switched Mexico from reconsider travel to do not travel. So, yikes. I mean, it is still kind of like it's, it's a weird with Mexico because the border is closed, but like you can still go and it seems like a weird situation. Yeah. And there's all sorts of airlines increasing the number of flights going to Mexico. They're adding routes to these like towns and cities that like weren't even on their schedules earlier in the year. So mm. Yikes. The, the other thing I wanted to quickly mention is, did you see that Airbnb has all of these weird they're, they're doing like a promotional thing because they went public and they're trying to, you know, whatever they're everyone's trying to get business. But right now they're doing this thing where you can stay in all of these really random nostalgia sort of lodgings like will smith like the fresh prince of bel-air's mm -hmm. mansion with will smith as your host and the barbie mansion they've like recreated the barbie mansion as like a whole an actual real life <laughs> thing and you can stay there you can also Whoa. stay in an air in a, a blockbuster the last blockbuster in existence now has this like wow living room bedroom residence where you can like have an overnight sleepover at the blockbuster with your friends and watch a bunch of movies from the <laughs> blockbuster that you're that's staying in. Mm, sounds really creepy actually <laughs> yeah, <laughs> old that, blockbuster I don't know if I'd be into that. yeah um so i don't know that was kind of fun mm. some light news yeah tsa throughput numbers right now ha have ticked up again they were kind of 
stagnant for the past couple months prior to Thanksgiving and actually like ticked down a little bit. And it looks like obviously over Thanksgiving, there was lots of, uh, there was an uptick and, and lots of people were traveling, you know, not as many as normal, of course. And people, a lot of people did heed the warnings, but mm-hmm. it did tick up and there's trending the past week or two. There has been a trend that's gone back up. So it seems like there's a little uptick overall and people flying on planes, which isn't a bad thing, I think, for the most part. There's a lot of evidence showing that like planes aren't the things that are getting people sick. It's the activities around travel. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I read this article this morning about what happened in Europe because they did so well during the summer. And then now there's a second wave and mm-hmm. they identified this one strain of the virus from Spain and found that like 80% of people in the UK have that strain. Because mm-hmm. all these people went and they came back and there was no testing requirements. You could go to Spain without a test. So I don't know. I think the the moral of the story may be just like get yeah, tested if you're yeah. going to travel before and after. Yeah, hopefully yeah, we'll see with the vaccine. I think I saw some an article recently that was sort of drumming up the fear factors around mutations and whether the vaccine, you know, by the time everyone gets the vaccine, will it have mutated? And, mm. you know, if people start traveling a bunch more, Will it increase the chance of mutations if strains are getting mixed with other strains right. potentially in different regions? And anyway, I didn't I didn't read too much into it. But Yeah, I mean, I think it's something we'll have to live with for a while, but it's, it's promising that so many companies have come up with vaccines. It seems like once they have that blueprint, maybe I mean, I'm speaking to someone with no knowledge about <laughs> how vaccines work, but, you know, maybe that'll make it easier in the future. No, yeah, it seems logical that at least like also a lot of the logistical hurdles, once they Mm -hmm. sort of iron those out with the first run, it'll be a lot Mm -hmm. easier. Those will all be, you know, set in in place for future rollouts. So it'll all hopefully continue to just get more efficient and quicker as they ramp up. And I guess in the UK, they've got... They've got a vaccine that's going to be rolled out next week. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to my friend about that. And it's like, it's great news, but like it is here, you know, if you're young and and healthy, you're not getting the vaccine anytime soon. So like, right. it's good news for everybody that this is happening, but for, for people of a certain age, like nothing, nothing much will be changing for a little while longer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's, uh, let's, let's uh, get into Richard Nixon's trip to China. So we want to start off, I want to start off a little bit differently this episode um, and start by actually talking about the trip itself. uh, And then we can get into uh, other considerations around how it ended up happening and and sort of how things shook out afterwards. So first, since you actually are somewhat of an expert on this, you did a lot of research on this as an undergrad. I did. Yes. I find Nixon very fascinating. So sure. So why don't you give us a sense of what, uh, who actually went with Nixon on this trip? Where did they go? What was their itinerary? Mm -hmm. What did the trip consist of? Yeah. So Nixon's party is, is Nixon and his wife, Pat Nixon, Henry Kissinger, who's the national security advisor, special assistant to him, um, a couple of other officials and like two plane loads of journalists who are there to document every moment of the trip for the American audience back home. Who's watching it largely in prime time over breakfast or dinner it's, you know, a very like must see TV mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. the time. So they go to Beijing, Hangzhou and Shanghai and tour around. They, they go places like the Great Wall and, you know, around around China to see the people. And they're kind of showing off to the Americans. Highlights of the trip are, are Nixon walks off the plane and shakes hand with 
the Chinese premiere Zhuang Lei, mm-hmm. which the New York Times immediately is like, you know, this is such a historic handshake. This is changing the world as we're watching. When the Nixon party goes, it's unclear if they're going to meet, going to be able to meet with Chairman Mao, the head of the Communist Party. But a few hours after they arrive, they get word that Mao wants to meet Nixon, which is actually a surprise to the Americans and to the Chinese. His press secretary, Ron Ziegler, if you watch The West Wing, he's like, there's a homage to him in The West Wing. But anyway, he's like eating a tangerine and he's so surprised he eats like half the tangerine, like peel and all that the Nixon's going to meet Mao. Mm. And the Chinese are shocked, too, because Mao is like not doing very well. He'd been unconscious for nine days before this meeting. Like he was very weak. So they were like, OK, OK, you can meet him, but only for 10 minutes. And so it. Nixon ends up talking to Mao for over an hour and writes about the encounter in detail in his memoirs, but says, you know, Mao was very animated, but you could see he was getting tired by the end. And as soon as the Americans leave, Mao like falls back in his chair and gets like oxygen. Um, He's really not doing doing well at all. Um, They go to the Great Wall and Nixon in very like typical sort of Nixon understatement. It looks around and it's like, this is a it's a great wall, (laughs) period. It's like fake tourists around to make it look um, like Hmm. populated, like there's there's all this activity going on in China. They're brought to watch sports. And I found this really great quote from the New York Times where they, de- they describe the uh, watching these sports as a dozen fierce rounds of racket combat that go by the name badminton and table tennis, but there are no resemblance to the lazy paddling that most Americans associate with these games. They're like very intense games. And the Nixons talk about that as well when they talk about their experiences of the trip. And then at the final banquet, Nixon says, he gives a toast and he says, this is the week that changed the world which is also kind of a typical Nixon thing to be like very grandiose, but it was a very important week and it did change a lot of things that were happening in the world. So aside from the, these official activities, like were there any other stories that stood out about the trip? So many stories, (laughs) so many stories. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing is that a Pat Nixon, the first lady walks off the plane in this bright red coat Mm -hmm. and any picture you see, of the Nixons in China, she always stands out because everyone around her, the Chinese and the Americans alike, are wearing more like drab colors of gray and and blue and brown, and she's wearing bright red. And there was this um, exhibit of like first ladies through history and their clothing uh, put on by some museum, and they talk about this coat. Like no one really really knows why she wore it, but it matched the color of the Chinese flag. It's the Chinese color of um, like good luck and prosperity. Mm. And apparently the Chinese were quite taken by her wearing this. I read another source that said that she was warned against the coat because it's the color of uh, that prostitutes wear in China, apparently. But it seemed to be a big hit at the time. And then it's interesting, too, because Nixon, when he ran, when he was Eisenhower's vice president, he got in hot water about basically accepting money, like maybe from a slush fund. And he goes on TV and gives this checkers speech when he defends himself and says that the only gift they ever they ever accepted was a dog named Checkers. But he, he has a line about Pat Nixon, too. He says, I have a quote here. He says, I should say this, that Pat doesn't have a mink coat, but she does have a respectable, a respectable, wow, I can't say that word, respectable, <laughs> thank you, Republican cloth coat. And that's what she's wearing. She's wearing a cloth coat and she wears it the same coat for every day of the trip, which is like significant because she's the first lady of this rich country 
wearing the same coat every day. She's not changing outfits every day. So mm-hmm. that's some other like very like small moment, small like mm-hmm. thing that she's doing. I heard there was also like a, an exchange of gifts in which I guess, I don't know if Pat Nixon orchestrated this, but the U.S. apparently gave China two American musk oxen, which I... I can't picture in my head, but don't sound like the most um, beautiful or like charming animals. And then in exchange, the Chinese gave there was a ceremony where Pat Nixon received two pandas from from China. And, you know, obviously pandas being like a big thing in China. So but it just struck me as kind of a unequal exchange. Like, (laughs) yeah, well, oxen are like big and strong yeah but they're like maybe they're beautiful oxen i don't i've never seen a beautiful oxen and like (laughs) every video i see of panda bears is super cute Mm. and they're always like getting into like rascally yeah like pandas are pretty top notch in terms of gifts and i don't think musk oxen quite maybe it was the year of the ox or something could, could that have been? Hopefully. Hopefully. I hope so. Because otherwise, that I feel like that could have gone bad. Well, the panda story, as I've heard it, is a little bit different. She, they're at dinner with Zuan Lei, and there's, they, they had seen pandas during the day. Um, again, Pat Nixon wearing her red coat. And there's a, it's a packet of cigarettes on the table with pandas on them. And Pat Nixon points to them and says, oh, those are so cute. And Zuan Lei says, I'll get you some. And she says, cigarettes? He goes, no, pandas. <laughs> and that's when he gives the two pandas to the Washington, D.C. Zoo. Oh, gotcha. Hmm. Yeah. That's funny. So I don't know what came first, the oxen or the pandas, mm-hmm. but that's the story I, I read in one of the biographies. Well, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I would skip the oxen. Okay, so before we get into the aftermath of the trip and, and uh, whether it sort of achieved its goals, let's go back and talk about how this entire trip came about. So what was so significant about a U.S. president going to China in the first place? And how did how did this this whole thing come about? Well, after World War II, there was this huge realignment of power and global standings. And the thing that was happening in China after World War II was the Chinese Civil War between Chinese communists and Chinese nationalists, in which the the Chinese communists win the day and the nationalists go to the Republic of China or to Taiwan. And the Americans, because they're anti-communists, you know, they throw their weight behind the the nationalists. So that, of course, causes tensions between them and China. Um, There's also the Korean War, in which China throws their weight behind the communist side. And then during the Cold War, you know, fairly or unfairly, Democrats have this reputation of being soft on communism, which makes it hard for any Democrat to do very much do what Nixon did. Basically, they have to show that there are hard lines on communists, communists and John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson kind of take a similar approach. And they're like, we don't need to negotiate with China because they're sort of the enemy. And and that's it. So then Nixon, the Nixon, because Nixon was also kind of anti-communist. Yeah. But what was his his reasoning behind the move? By the 1970s, I mean, in the late 1960s, 1970s, a lot of things have started to shift again. In 1968 or 1969, China and the USSR started accusing each other of being poor communists. And then Brezhnev, who is the, the leader of the USSR, comes out and, and says with this doctrine that the USSR will, quote unquote, save any communist country that needs saving, which is sort of similar to the US and the Truman Doctrine saying they will help any like free-loving people against communists. They're doing similar things here. The Chinese are nervous about this because the Soviets, as part of this doctrine, well, actually, the doctrine was to justify this. They had invaded Czechoslovakia. Cat friend. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, it's the cat on the on the screen. Um, so then oh, I lost my train of thought. 
So then, anyway, so China and the Soviets share a border and the Chinese are thinking, well, this isn't good. Like the Soviets apparently want to take over the world and we don't like that. Also, I guess the 1960s, we should mention that Vietnam was happening. So reaching out to China seemed like an appealing way of dealing with the war. But the biggest thing to note is that the Soviets and the Chinese were drifting apart and Nixon saw that as an opportunity. Gotcha. But because, I mean, Nixon's because of his reputation as, you know, he's a Republican, he's anti-communist, this switch from being anti-China to being open to better relations with China must have gotten a reaction from domestically from his own people. I mean, how did how did the press react to this? How did Republicans react to this, um, to this kind of switch and this decision to announce that they were going to improve relations with China? Yeah, it was really interesting because this came as such a surprise to everyone. And the, the Japanese didn't know this was coming either. Like, Talk about a reaction to it. I think there's a word in Japanese for the shock that they felt when Nixon said he was going to go to China because that was such a switch. And like they thought the Americans were in their camp and China to them was a geopolitical like foe. The press was surprised but supportive. There's a letter to the editor when they they talk about how he says, well, yeah, obviously only Nixon could do this because if anyone else were doing it, Nixon would be leading the pack crying treason. But on the other side of it, Republicans were like very, very upset with Nixon. Uh, William F. Buckley of the National Review writes this paper or this um, uh, editorial called Say It Isn't So, Mr. President, which asks, is he really one of us? And they can't even believe that Nixon's anti-communist would act in this way. And there's a great political cartoon that we can post on Twitter of John Foster Dulles, who is Eisenhower's secretary of state. And he's in this portrait looking down at Nixon, who's holding a suitcase labeled China. And there's an, an olive branch poking out. And John Foster Dulles is saying, that's my boy, question mark. Like, how could you possibly do this? So there's a very like, it's very uh, surprising just to everyone, to the press, mm-hmm. to the public, to the to the world at large. And I guess so. But but ultimately, people sort of come to fall in line or at least sort of there's the backlash is not so much that it really causes much any any negative repercussions and that has led to the this term someone can pull a nixon going to china and 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 that sort of means that they've bucked their own people or sort of i guess it's it's saying that like they're kind of going going against the grain of what you might think they would do exactly because they have the the political capital or the credibility to to actually the credentials yeah, there is um, there is a Star Trek movie later on, like in the night, one of the 90s movies, I think, where they're negotiating with the Klingons, which is one enemy early on in the Star Trek uh, franchise. And and Spock tells Kirk this Vulcan proverb, only Nixon could go to China, which it, in the context of the scene is about how like only Kirk can negotiate with the Klingons or X, Y and Z. But yeah, it's this idea that if you have the sterling capital of being like against something, you might be the perfect person to reach across the aisle mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. shake their hand. Any other examples of like Nixon going to China moments in U.S. politics since then? Like, what do people characterize as? I mean, yeah, the big one recently was was President Trump reaching out to North Korea. People at the time classified that this could be a Nixon goes to China moment Mm -hmm. because he's someone who has, you know, sparred with the dictator online, on Twitter or whatever. And like now he's reaching out. Maybe this is a moment like that. That's the one that comes to mind. There may may be others as well, but Mm -hmm. that was one that drew a lot of comparisons when he first announced he was going to go to North Korea. And there was I also read that there was this idea floating around, maybe rumors that Ted Kennedy and others were 
planning to engage with China, and that also maybe pushed Nixon to jump on that yeah. before them. Is there any? There was like this this Chinese official, like quote unquote, let it slip that maybe the Chinese were going to invite Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, and two other senators, Ed Muskie and George McGovern, who are both Nixon campaign rivals in 1972 to China and that they would work with the Democratic Congress instead of with the Republican White House. And so, yeah, it's possible that Nixon was like, no way. Like, if if this is a Kennedy, I think it would like literally kill him if the Kennedys go to China before he does. Because, you know, he he hates the Kennedys. He absolutely hates them after 1960 Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, losing the election Mm -hmm. to, to John Kennedy. And I also read that prior to the trip, there was also there were all sorts of secret negotiations mostly between Kissinger and the Chinese to set everything up. But at the same time, there was an event, there was like a international table tennis event in Mm -hmm. Japan or Korea in which there was some interaction between the U.S. players and the Chinese players. And that resulted in this this invitation for like a tour of China for the the American players. And and then this may have led to sort of an opening, an initial uh, thawing out, like a good sort of a goodwill feeling. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There there had been talks before this happened, but they had kind of hit a lull. And then, like you said, there was this this ping pong tournament going on, which I, I think was in Japan. I think but it was Japan. Yeah. Anyway, I think it was in Japan. And this one American player, as they're leaving, misses his bus. And so he gets on the Chinese bus instead to go back to the hotel or something. And no one's talking to him. Everyone's like staring at him like, what are you doing here? But this one guy approaches him and through a translator starts talking with him and eventually gives him like the small gift he had in his backpack. And they get off the bus together and they're talking and people are taking pictures of them. And then the American players later asked about this and they say, well, would you go to China if you were asked? And he was like, yeah, like, yeah, I'd go to China. And then the Chinese invite the Americans to come play there, which is like, oh, interesting. And like Mao himself was like, we should invite the Americans to play, which the Americans, you know, watching this very closely as they were trying to set up a trip where like this is a they're extending a hand to us. So this is a good sign. And it's interesting, like a thing where like sports can be a, you know, a diplomatic, not a tool, but assistance. Yeah. But oftentimes, like, I mean, I'm thinking of like the Cuba U.S. situation just a few years ago. There certainly like Major League Baseball played a role in in the overtures mm-hmm. prior to Obama going down. There were these like goodwill games going on, I think, between Cuban baseball and, and U.S. baseball leagues. Mm-hmm. And I think like often it's the case that like something like that, some sort of cultural interchange that's a little bit less that's, you know, that's non-political and that can take place without there being too much weight involved on either side are like often ways in which countries sort of start to like get back into good graces yeah, with each other. That's true. Okay, so so there's skepticism at home, um, but Nixon pulls it off, the trip goes forward, everything goes smoothly, the pandas and the oxens are given <laughs> and received, and mm-hmm. diplomatic relations are established between China and the United States. So what happens after that, did the trip serve its purpose for Nixon? And what were sort of the immediate results of the trip? I think yes and no. There's like a big yes, because at the same time as the China negotiations, the U.S. was trying to set up like a summit agreement with Moscow and they kept getting rebuffed. And then Nixon comes out and says, you know what, I'm going to China, which, you know, as we mentioned, what had this new tension with the USSR. And suddenly Nixon gets an invitation to come to Moscow. So he becomes the first sitting president to go to Moscow. And 
is planned to kind of drive a wedge between the two works. They're no longer this block, the Soviets and the Chinese together. But, you know, part of going to China had he been hopeful about Vietnam and ending the war. And obviously that dragged on after the trip. So that wasn't a success Mm -hmm. so much. But Mm -hmm. in terms of his goals of um, detente and and kind of, you know, making the Cold War less intense and less scary, I think he succeeded in that, which was one of his big policy goals as Mm -hmm. president. And then he also this was like an election year. So yeah, you think it bolstered his chances going into the election? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, when you see your president and again, this was like must see TV, you know, uh, conducting this successful foreign trip. I think that's an impressive thing. And Nixon wins every single state except for your home state of Massachusetts in 1972. Yeah. Which is a showing that few presidents can say that they win every single, I think in the 20th century, Reagan might be the only other one in 84. So yeah, I mean, he wins by a landslide in 72. Yeah. And then in terms of the cultural impact of the trip, can you talk a little bit about the way Americans perceive the Chinese people before and after the trip? It, It seems like things started to change just among the general populace's perception of China. Yeah. So there's this poll that comes out in March 1972. Nixon's in China in February 1972. And it compares American perspectives on the Chinese people um, between 72 and 66. And so they ask, how do you see the Chinese people in categories of being hardworking or intelligent or honest or brave? And all these numbers go up. They see them as having more of these positive attributes directly after the trip, which I think shows that seeing, you know, I guess your leader like interacting with people can change your perspective of someone who for many people, probably their whole lives are being told this is the enemy. These are not good people. And then kind of seeing them face to face like that was an important impact of of going. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, let's leave it at that. Uh, That is our show. And that is the last episode of the season. So as we said, uh, we'll be back in the new year with more scintillating content that you've come to love. Thank you for listening and make sure to follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Yesterday in Trav, where we post about our episodes and everything going on in travel. You can email us with feedback or episode ideas at yesterdayintravel at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, tell a friend, leave us a review and or subscribe in the feed. I guess all of the above. Uh, Thanks for listening and we'll be back with more soon.